This is a Power 98.7 podcast. Now we're talking. Subscribe to Power 98.7 podcasts in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. There's more on power987.co.za. We're going to talk climate change now. And I know that um, we've all heard the tom- terminology. We all have opinions about what it is. Some evil, uh, some evil, it must be speaking to my Freudian mindset. Some even believe it is just all a creation of the West in order to justify um, the development and establishment of a new parallel green economy. And so you want to back it up in science. But the truth of the matter is this. Um, the summers are hotter. The winters are colder. This year we had snow in Johannesburg. Um, We've had flooding in KwaZulu-Natal. We've had many different droughts and incantations of droughts, even in the Eastern Cape. They were so close to day zero um, over winter because, you know, it's supposed to be rainy season in the Cape. The rains weren't coming. Something is happening in the environment, and we're even told that South Africa has already started to to, to experience that 1.5 degree increase in um, uh, in warmth over the stratosphere, you know. And then, of course, when we start to look at the resources with which uh, Africa is endowed, and how we then might, in future, contribute to uh, fossil fuel emissions the issue becomes really more serious than that. And the African continent is the one that's most vulnerable to climate conditions. And so it's the one that is the central feature of all investments for mitigation and adaptation uh, to transition the economies to something different in the medium to long term. That's the simple way in which I understand it. However, Brandon Abdenor, who is a climate advocacy lawyer at the Center for Environmental uh, Rights, he joins us now to discuss with us the National Assembly's passing of the climate change bill on Tuesday. It is something that a lot of climate scientists, the Climate Change Commission, uh, and many big industrial players have been watching because it sets into motion an entire new regimen around how we transition uh, to something new. It even starts to formalize uh, the Climate Commission is what I am told. Uh, We had requested that the minister joins us, but she's not in a position to do so. I guess in the aftermath of this um, climate change bill being presented to Parliament, um, she's got a lot of administrative work to do, but has assured us she'll join us at a more convenient time going forward. But Brandon can help us make sense of what has just transpired. Good morning, Brandon Abdenoir. Good morning, Lerato, and good morning to the listeners. Thank you so much for coming through. So, first and foremost, just in terms of a broad explanation, did I get it right? Did I miss anything? Can you help us? <laughs> Thank you. No, I think you, you hit it spot on um, in terms of what climate change is and in terms of the kinds of impact that we can see and also in terms of the, uh, I think you've got a very sort of accurate and you said it's a new regimen that's coming in. Mm. Um, and I think that's the intention of the bill, really, or, or the Climate Change Act to be, um, in that what it does is it creates an all-of-government approach to climate response by okay. setting up the different institutional arrangements that we need. So it imposes obligations on national governments, on the provinces, and on municipalities to harmonize all of their laws and their policies and their measures to make sure that they are aligned with the principles of the Climate Change Act. Um, okay. And that includes the adaptation and the, 
the the mitigation that you spoke of as well. It also does establish the Presidential Climate Commission into law. And that's a very important forum because that's where the social compact around the climate response gets negotiated between business, labor, government, and civil society. Okay, so let's get back to uh, ground level, uh, if I may use that pun. So when you say what the bill, which will one day become an act, one will one day become law, what it does is it establishes a set of values and principles for all of government, for everything that we do. So in other words, if you're running the Ministry and Department of Education, how you build schools has to comply with the principles of this act. If you're running a hospital, must comply. If you're dealing with a water treatment plant, you must comply, and so on and so forth. So just give us an understanding what this is going to mean on a broad scale and how it's going to work. Okay, well, once the act is in place, there's a whole progressive system that then needs to get further sort of formulated and then implemented. So the first step in that is probably going to be what we call the, and this is on the mitigation side, the sectoral emissions targets. So that means the different sectors, such as education, um, and the big ones in this case would be energy, because that's where most of our emissions come from, and then transport and agriculture are also fairly fairly high up there. Um, Each of these sectors are going to get targets by which they need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So there's going to be a process where the remaining, can we call it the carbon space, how much we can still um, emit greenhouse gases, gets divided among these different sectors. Um, And that's possibly going to be quite a controversial or even a political process because I guess each sector is going to want to to take up as much of that space as possible. Now, the energy sector, as challenging as it is to decarbonize, is also, in a sense, the low-hanging fruit. It's our, our largest emitters. And because while it's, there are many layers to this, in, in the very simplest form, um, a measure such as moving away from fossil fuels and to renewables is achievable. And we're seeing many countries in the world, in fact, achieving that quite easily. Um, the technologies there and the, the reliability, the cost, the speed at which new generation capacity can be brought on board need to be factors which are brought into this into this kind of dividing up of the pie. Steel making, for example, is quite tricky to decarbonize. Um, it's known as a hard to abate sector, and that, but we need to look after all of the sectors and and protect jobs and economic activity as much as possible. So how can we make space for those harder to abate sectors? Um, and a way of doing that is to, is to yeah. obviously hit the, the easier ones first. On the adaptation side, you know, so we, we're going to see municipalities, provinces, etc., needing to conduct risks and vulnerability assessments. So how do these expect the climate impact, impact on their particular mm-hmm. activity, um, which is also going to be location-specific. Okay. Um, and municipalities are quite, quite an obvious example there because mm-hmm. that's where the impact really sort of hits okay. quite solidly, the floods that you were speaking about. Yeah. Um, those, those impacts are quite local, and the responses need to be quite local. So mm-hmm. we're going to see the need to be able to assess those risks and creatively come up with resilience measures. Right. And an important aspect of that is to ensure that those processes are quite inclusive. Right. That we don't necessarily, from the top down, 
kind of visit climate responses mm. on communities without communities also making input okay. because they also know what they need and they know what their what they don't need. experiences are. Yeah, we'll talk about those communities in a moment. I still just want to get an understanding of what it is we're dealing with. You said what the bill, which ultimately will be an act, what it will do is set the parameters of what the principles are. Um, what, are we, what do we mean by principles? So what is South Africa's approach to this climate crisis and what are the, going to be the values that inform what all of government and civil society are going to be expected to do? What does this bill tell us? So it's, it's kind of a marriage. I mean, the science tells us quite clearly what we need to do. Um, in terms of mitigation, we need to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That does need to be measured against the developmental needs of the country and the country's ability to, to take those steps. Um, and there needs to be a, an element of fairness that's introduced there as well. We know that most of the greenhouse gas emissions, or nearly all of them that are causing the problems we're seeing today, come from countries that have been emitting high levels of greenhouse gas over preceding decades. Okay. So it's not fair necessarily to expect a country like South Africa to in, reduce emissions at the same rate as a USA, for example. Mm. But at the same time, we are a large emitter and, and everybody needs to sort of take their, you know, take their piece of the responsibility. So we have our targets in terms of the Paris Agreement, which are now going to be enshrined in domestic law as well. And those targets get formulated applying a kind of fair share approach, as it's known. So, so South Africa is not being expected to decarbonize at the same rate and to the same extent as, as the global north. Okay. Um, so that's, that's what's got to kind of come into this as well, as well as the considerations of a just transition. Mm-hmm. We can't have the burdens of this decarbonization rest on the workers in the coal value chain, for example. Mm-hmm. So there needs to be this, these measures brought in which make sure that they're not left behind um, so that the, the benefits and the, and the costs are distributed fairly. Okay. So I'm hearing quite a few things that you're saying, so I just want you to help simplify it for us. So when we talk decarbonization, it means, you know, getting out of these industries that are high gas emitters. And a lot of those are in the mining sector, particularly the coal mining sector. So you're saying that South Africa has to follow that path. But South Africa is not expected to follow that path at the speed at which it's happening in other parts of the world because we still need coal-fired stations, because we've got uh, tens of thousands of workers in the sector, and because even though we've been polluters in the world, we're not polluters on the scale of, say, a China or an America or Europe itself. So a different set of timetables applies to South Africa. Did I understand that correctly? In a sense, yes. So even the Paris Agreement talks about common but differentiated responsibilities, recognizing each country needs to do that. And then each country will have its own specific circumstances. So our power system is heavily reliant on coal. Mm. Now, it just so happens that the way the situation has evolved is that a lot of our coal-fired power stations are nearing the end of their lifespan. They're becoming very expensive to continue running, and they're becoming unreliable. So the, the push to then decarbonize is also informed by those economics. And then issues like health. I mean, we have a health ep- epidemic as a result of, of pollution from coal by power stations. Um, so these are also push factors to encourage and suggest that uh, as fast action as reasonably possible is still something we should pursue. 
Okay. And, um, you know, last week I was at a, a, a climate summit and I heard an interesting thing which says we focus so much on coal. We forget that even the automotive sector, the fact that we're still using petrol and creating petrol uh, combustion engines. I don't even know if I understand that science correctly. Also means that the automotive sector has to be front and center. And so when we talk just transition, we have to include sectors like that as well. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the greenhouse gas emissions in the world are from uh, petrol and diesel cars and trucks and buses and so on. So that needs to evolve and move as well. And we're starting to see um, pilot schemes and, and even sort of proper schemes where, for example, buses are going to start switching to electric motors. Yeah. And then there's sort of the economic impacts of that as well. So we've got an automotive industry, um, which we export from quite substantially. And for example, the EU is going to be banning petrol and diesel engines by 2035. So a part of the climate response in a broader sense is how do we help transform our automotive industry to be manufacturing electric vehicles, for example, um, instead of the traditional ones. All right. So energy, as you said, is a huge pillar of the bill and the work that's being done. Uh, when we talk about a just energy transition plan and its implementation, because all of us, regardless of race, creed, culture, economic status, we all need electricity and we all need reliable electricity. So there's this frustration in South Africa, which is we don't have electricity and everybody's talking um, renewables that don't yet exist and we don't even have the basic electricity right now. So, you know, experts say we're oversimplifying it. But what is the approach here? Because fundamentally, regardless of the science and the international protocols, we want the lights on and we want the lights on day in and day out because we pay for the service. Absolutely. And it just so it turns out that the, the things that are going to help us decarbonize are the things that are going to sort out our energy crisis. Um, there was a study released last year that said had we built... I think it was something like 20 gigawatts of renewables, I think even 10 over the preceding five years, which was theoretically possible, 96% of load shedding would have been averted. For whatever reasons, we've got to this point where most of the coal fleet is now very creaky and breaking down a lot. So we need something else. It simply doesn't make economic sense, climate change considerations aside, to keep investing in that system. So the alternative is the renewables, and and they get built so much quicker. It's it's a much simpler process. The technology is a lot simpler. So it just so happens that a sound climate response when it comes to electricity is also just a sound solution for the electricity crisis and also sets us on a path to be able to have cheaper electricity because those generation costs are a lot cheaper. Mm -hmm. It's not a simple process. There are many aspects involved here. Um, but it's, all the experts really agree and the modeling agrees it is, in fact, the way to go mm-hmm. to get uh, a better system in place. All right. There's also, you know, within the energy sector, and I don't want to focus too much on electricity, but there's also something happening legally as well, uh, where an electricity regulation amendment bill was presented to Parliament and within it is an NTCSA, which is supposed to create a deregulated system, especially on the transmission side. Um uh, and then start to introduce some of these renewable players to feed into the grid. Where are we in terms of some of these measures? Okay, I'm probably not well qualified to give okay. a, a very thorough response on that, but there, there are a number of things happening here. So there's a lot of work being done to 
encourage and set up uh, a feed-in tariff system at municipal level. And there's a surprising number of municipalities that already do that. I think mm. it's around 95. And they pay a, a vastly different range of costs. But uh, the benefit of that is it, in a sense, potentially democratizes the energy system quite a lot. So you can have a, a situation where a community can get together build a, a relatively small renewable plant and actually sell excess back to the grid, putting money into the pockets of, of people. The, the sort of traditional fossil fuel-based system is, is obviously very technologically complex and, mm. and the kinds of facilities that provide that power are expensive. Mm. So, so that generation potential lies then in the hands of, of large business. Um, which is one of the problems, really. Um, we do have an energy poverty situation in the country. And to allow more players and coming from different angles, okay. the ability to participate in that is, is an right. economic bonus for many. I have to tell you, you've done really well. So you've painted for us uh, a whole picture of what the ecosystem is, what the adaptation coping with what we do and moving forward and the mitigation just completely avoid problems in the future approach are. Does this um, bill have any penalties um, in terms of the rules, regulations and compliances? So what is it? what does it expect people to do? And if they don't do it, what are the consequences? There are a number of penalties, but they're for relatively, I won't say unimportant, but they're not for the sort of headline items. Okay. So if you don't submit a greenhouse gas mitigation reduction plan, for example, you are subject to a penalty. However, there's no penalty for not adhering to a reduction plan. And therein lies the problem, is that we could get a situation where large emitters, because the the intention is that if you exceed your carbon budget, which is going to be allocated Mm -hmm. to large emitters, you are then subject to a punitive carbon tax rate. So that's the way they want to incentivize reduction. But you could get a situation where a large emitter, and we've heard this from the mouths of some of them, um, that might choose to rather pay the higher carbon tax rate than actually you know, go down the admittedly difficult path of, of reducing emissions. So we would have liked to see that as a penalty, um, just to ensure that those who absolutely refuse to come into line can actually be, be prohibited from doing so. And are there any incentives, especially at, you know, uh, local level? I know that, for instance, there's been this big push to to encourage people to get solar panels in their homes. And even the banks are looking at ways to help to finance it the way they would finance, say, a car or a mortgage. So uh, what are the incentives for people to start thinking more uh, conscientiously? So the bill in itself doesn't sort of sketch out incentives directly. Okay. It more sets the scene where the other factors that can be incentives could come into play. Okay. Um, a big one being what I mentioned earlier is, is the ability for smaller parties, if you like, to, to come on board with, with own generation capacity and, and realize um, benefits okay. from that. So they just and set the foundation and then the, the, the market will, will create the rest? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, from outside, there's a bit of concern at, at allowing the market to run the show. Yeah. Um, our clients and, and a lot of our, our sort of associates are skeptical about too much privatization mm. um, because that leads to the potential for a different kind of profiteering. So we do see the current electricity system as a common good mm. for everybody and, and don't necessarily want to see that being 
kind of cornered by mm. by private commercial interests. Okay. Um, just to, to keep the economics a lot more fair and allow the distribution of benefits to be right. done in a way that's better than how it was done in the past. All right, and Brandon, final question. This bill ultimately will formalize the Presidential Climate Commission. You alluded to that earlier on. What is their work and why is it important that it now becomes a kind of a statutory body, an agency, a chapter something institution? Mm. Yeah, I think it's important just to give it the standing because, I mean, already, even before it received this, this, this sort of formalized status, has been doing an incredible amount of work over the past two years. Um, and what they tend to do is pick a, a topic and then, first of all, facilitate dialogue between the different social partners and then also commission research. Yeah. So the first one they did was to look at our sort of last update of the Paris Agreement target. Um, they did the modeling, they did the studies, they held the dialogues, and then came up with a recommendation. They then um, formulated the Just Transition Framework. Again, it could have been done more inclusively. We always push for a lot of participation, mm-hmm. but it, uh, there, there has, has been a lot of dialogue around that. And that framework has been adopted by Cabinet and is the closest thing we have to a blueprint for a Just Transition. Mm-hmm. And most recently um, worked on recommendations for an electricity system, which which, um, resolves the many challenges that we've already spoken about. Thank you so much. I know that uh, you've had to bat away quite a few questions where you're saying, oh, but I'm not a scientist, but let me tell you. Uh, you've helped a lot and we really appreciate your input. Brandon Abdenor, a climate advocacy lawyer at the Centre for Environmental Rights. You've been listening to a Power 98.7 podcast. For more podcasts, visit power987.co.za or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.